Hello, welcome. It is Yorkshire Grit forward slash LaCole. Up in this episode two with Chris Opie, we are going to talk about cycling. Chris, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, it's really good to see you. Chris is a cyclist who has uh, retired. Chris has had a really great career and he's worked for several different companies and he's come out the other side of cycling and he's been really open about it. Um, he's been open about some of the tough times when you retire. So this episode is kind of going to go back to the roots of Yorkshire Grit in a way. We're going to kind of, you know, hopefully inspire people, talk about um, the ups and the downs. Uh, but before we get started, Chris, have you been watching Le Tour de France? I have been religiously. Um, yeah. I try and plan my work day around it so that any any computer-based tasks can be done with it in the background to distract me. Are you a big Grand Tour guy or do you prefer the classics or...? Uh, that's a good question. It's probably the only Grand Tour that I actually watch. Like, I follow the other stuff, mm -hmm. but only from a distance, really. I love the classics. I will watch them if I can. But I wouldn't go out of my way like I do with the Tour to watch it. Like, I will try and make sure that I see it. Just because it's it's quite open, isn't it? It's quite a journey over that three weeks. There are so many different things happening. It's not like a one-day race. And it's not... The other Tours, they don't capture my imagination in the same way. I watched the Giro this year and I, and I, I didn't enjoy it. It didn't seem to have the razzmatazz that the Tour de France has. But this this Tour, this Podgicar guy, it seems to me that cycling now... All right, I'm, I'm, I could be completely wrong here, but do you think it's becoming more polarised? I read a statistic somewhere that only certain people win the majority of the races. So like your Remco's, your Van der Poel's, your Van Aert's, your Alaphilippe's, and like something like 90% of the peloton don't actually win a race. Do you think it's becoming, well, well, it's obvious that this tour is just Van Aert and Podgicar, isn't it? What are they doing differently? Is that your question? Well, yeah, is it as simple as that? Or have we just got two freaks in the same race, in the same generation, in the same year? I think there's a combination of a few things. I think we've gotten to a point now where riders have come up and they've come through and they've never been misinformed in the way that we perhaps were, you know, riders above 30. Most riders above 30 at some point have been told for no reason other than it was tradition, you need to be skinny, you need to lose weight. Whereas riders under 30 and certainly riders under 25 they have probably been told you need to be strong, you need to be powerful, you need to be well-fueled, you need to pay attention to all these other things that were completely irrelevant to riders from that previous era. So they've had a really good start in the sport, I feel. They've been training correctly from the day they started. They've been strapped to a power meter. Whether or not they used it all the time, it's a great tool for analysis. So they've mm -hmm. understood the efforts they're doing. And then they've had access to racing in a way that people previously never had access to racing. And what I mean by that is they were able to watch it on YouTube. They could watch the tactics play out. They could see how things happen in certain scenarios. And I think to an extent, the names that they were going to be racing against became quite normalised to them. So they weren't starstruck in the same way that perhaps riders from a previous era were. Imagine a rider in the 90s, they got to read about these pro riders in magazines. That's a world apart from watching someone talk to a camera on YouTube. That's interesting. In quite a personable way so i feel that riders that they have just access to information knowledge it's it's normalized in a way that it wasn't before so they feel comfortable being around those those big named riders whereas perhaps in the past they could have felt intimidated 
And then there's a whole attitude. Everyone believes now, I can win this. Whereas I think in the past, people were perhaps like, oh, I shouldn't be able to beat this guy. I feel looking at the sport and looking at how aggressive racing is now and just the whole the whole way it pans out compared to what it used to pan out, it's not as controlled anymore, is it? It, it really is flat out racing, which is exciting. I'm not going to quite go as far to say it's like a seismic change because, you know, I'm no pundit, but, you know, even if you were to look as, let's say, like four years ago and it was like Sky, very metronic, it was boring as fuck. It was just, you know, it was... You know, I'm not saying it was killing the spot, but they were getting booed, weren't they? Yeah. Team Sky were getting booed a lot by on the tour. And it was becoming very kind of, well, you know, fast forward four or five years time, you couldn't literally, if you if you were to say to Christian Prudhomme that you go, right, the sport's going to change this much, he, he wouldn't have believed you. And now yeah. it's kind of this young lad who is really kind of relaxed, and I hadn't even thought about what you just said about YouTube. Because I suppose back in the day, you don't have Instagram. You don't know what these people look like. And then all of a sudden, if you were a young lad from Slovenia, if you were to come on the, uh, the front start line against Jan Ulrich or Lance Armstrong, I suppose you are going to be a little bit like, fuck. But now it's kind of, you know, they tag each other in photos. They they probably message each other a bit. Um yeah, I hadn't thought about that dynamic at all. Yeah, I think it's changed things. I hadn't really thought about it a great deal until today. And it was just one of those things that you kind of realise as you're talking, it does have an effect. It it does make it more more real to them. It's that these people are no longer so far removed from their lives. They see them daily, they know what they do, they know what they enjoy doing in their spare time, things like that. And it's it's a whole different dynamic to how the world was before. It's one benefit of social media, maybe. So how long have Power Meters been around for now? Are we talking over a decade? Yeah, it's well over a decade. Yeah, they've been used mainstream for over a decade. I think I first had one 13 or 14 years ago. They were around for a good 10 years before that, but they were so unbelievably expensive that only a few people had access to them and they never raced on them. Whereas now it's very rare to find someone that doesn't have one on their bike. Whether or not they admit to using it when racing, I think it's irrelevant. I think you could ban power meters when racing and it would change nothing anyway. People know what power numbers they're producing. Because you just made another good point then. Sorry, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass here. But you've, you've just ba- you've basically said two things that I hadn't even thought about. So, uh, so Tom Pidcock is a professional cyclist for Team Ineos. Now, I always use him as a, like, um, a blueprint. So if you were to give birth to a child and you wanted him to be a professional cyclist, that is how you do it. From yeah. birth to when you turn pro, th- that is exactly how you would do it. Training camps as a kid, a brother who's also a cyclist to bring him on, living in Leeds, good area to cycle. Dad's a cyclist. Got all got all the great kit. Not saying he was spoiled, but he did have all the he did have all the stuff. Uh, p- parents who take you to race on a weekend, who have the time uh, and let's say the means to do so. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he had a power meter from a young age. Now the point you just made, which I think was bloody good, is it possible to say that if they've only been coming around these past few years, power meters, is it a game change if you've had one from a kid? because then it shows you everything. And that's what, uh, while then instead of just getting one when you were like, what, 25, 30, if you can have a power meter from when you were, say, I don't know, 12, 
I feel like it gives you the advantage that when you train, you know how hard you're going. As in, we can all calculate our effort and we know, oh, that's a 10 out of 10 effort. But when you go to the gym and you lift, imagine 100 kilos, yeah. whatever exercise it is, you know you're lifting 100 kilos. And you go back next time and it's only 95. Or you go back another time and it's 120. That's how the power meter is working is it's giving you a definitive number that you're producing. Whereas before, we, it was only perceived exertion, wasn't it? Heart rate doesn't really tell you much because that's up and down and all over the place, depending on how tired you are, how many coffees you've had, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas having that absolute value to put to the training numbers really makes a difference. And then if you you can help calculate your fatigue, so you don't ever train when you're absolutely exhausted and unlikely to make the gains that you need to be making. So you can wait until you're fresher. You just train in a more calculated manner so it, it's not going to transform things but it's a help isn't it it just means that when you're meant to be lifting 100 kilos you're actually lifting 100 kilos instead of 97 or 96 so you're always training towards your closer to your optimum and you're able to fulfill that potential better than previously i had a power meter for a bit and it really damaged me it really fucked my head you know it was so bad for me it was unbelievable I couldn't, be, honestly, I'm not just saying it just to kind of like prove a point here and be like, oh, look at me, I don't like power meters. But it, it, it ruined me mentally. But there, there is an element of that, isn't there? It does make it scientific. And, you know, we've looked at the positive there. You know, we looked at, yeah, you can, you know, power uh, threshold over and under efforts, whatever these efforts are called. But then the longevity side of it is that it, it does make it quite scientific and it does make you quite robotic. Do you not think? Yes, definitely. Also, there is one problem with power meters. None of them read the same. So if you go from one team one year and you've got a really good power meter and then all of a sudden you're riding for a single legged power meter and you've got maybe one or two percent discrepancy, all of a sudden you go from doing 400 watts at a given effort intensity to 385. And that 15 watts, when you're trying to go as fast as you can, that will eat away at you slowly. So it's you have to be able to give it a place, don't you? You have to look at it with a little bit of context of it's an absolute value, but it's only absolute and relative to that day and that power meter. You can't really transfer it from season to season. And I think that's hard when you're younger. But then, you know, someone like Tom Pidcock and Pogacar, they've got that support around them that will help them realise that it's not the be-all and end-all. There's still so much more to cycling than just numbers. And this is the beauty mm. of cycling, isn't it? It's you're part man you're part machine and it's trying to find the blend of science and sensations in your legs and in your lungs and the mentality in your own head there's so much going on that makes someone a good bike rider that i suppose someone like pogaccia is the complete package at this Mm. moment in time you know in 10 years time his motivation might have waned a little bit after he's won the tour 13 years in a row (laughs) philip gilbert said in an article that he guarantees that Wout Van Aert and Van der Poel won't last long um, because they basically race, well, they used to race all year round with the cyclocross and stuff. And he says he has a beer every day. He doesn't have a load of beers, but he has a beer every day. And um, and it is it is funny because Chris Froome was, you know, Bradley Wiggins, Chris Froome, Contador, these guys, Cadell Evans, they were winning it, what, like, should we say early 30s, mid I think Conor won it when he was quite young, though. But then all of a sudden now, 
you know, Jai Hindley, Teo Gegenhart, Podjikar, you know, we're seeing like a, yeah, a young, there, there definitely is a change, isn't there? Yeah, there, there really is. Yeah. Um, it was always thought that riders couldn't perform at that level for that long until they were older, but that's clearly no longer the case. It's mad that, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird to watch, but I think it comes back to a few of the things we touched on at the start. They have that access to information and training and the social side of things. They're just seeing things differently to what the older riders saw. They they're able to gain that experience faster, I suppose, in a way. Like clearly, the body physically isn't too different between twenty two and thirty two. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do it. But they're now able to learn the little bits that join up all those physical dots ahead of time you know in the past that it took 10 years they can do it in three four five years i'm making up numbers a little bit to prove a point but i feel like there is an accelerated pathway now which wasn't there before i would agree with that i would yeah and it's something that i've been thinking about and it's something that i've been watching from afar but to get down to to you that's why you're here you just said then about like the full package of having like a relaxed mindset um you know power meters a good team and stuff when you were racing what was your mentality like because we raced a few times and you've always come across as a really i want to say like a gentleman you've always come across as a really nice guy and then stereotypically in cycling they say that those people like they fail you know i saw keith lambert and john herity the other day uh otley crip and they and who was i talking about remember mike coming in richard handley yeah, the two nicest people you can meet. Well, yeah, and I was always in awe of those two guys. They they looked great and they were so good. And I remember like John and Keith jokingly saying, like, yeah, but they were too nice. Um, and with you, you were really nice. But I don't think that ever stopped you really, did it? No, so I... Is being nice, is being nice bad in cycling? Is that is that seen as, you know, you can't be nice? Like in I tennis, think. you can. In tennis, you have to be really, you know, you're not allowed, yeah. you know, unless you're curious. In tennis, you have to shake hands and be a gentleman and stuff. I think you can pick and choose your moments, can't you? And I think that's the beauty of cycling as well is anything that happens in racing generally is quite quickly forgiven and people forget about it as long as you put your hand up and say, oh, sorry, whether you mean it or not, no one really minds. And that, that was like a nice outlet in my life. So I would be really cool, calm and nice, as in when I say cool, I mean relaxed most of the time probably 99% of the time and I probably wasn't aggressive enough often enough but when there was a click on a few days a year where I just felt the, the best version of myself and then it didn't really matter who did something or what it was I wasn't going to let them win that situation as it were so imagine you're racing into a corner nine times out of ten you might dab the brakes before the other person and be like I don't need to win this battle you can go first but then on those days it didn't matter what was going to happen I was going to make that corner before the next person and it would be you know the same situation in in any given scenario a lead out for a sprint now I want that wheel and no one else is having that wheel I'm willing to fight for it until the point that I fall on the floor or we both fall on the floor or whatever I did it to Scott Thwaites once we went into the barriers in a, in a tour series round I didn't do it on purpose. He <laughs> he went for a dive bomb at exactly the right time. And then I got really carried away. It's like, oh, there's still time to, for me to do it back to you. So I did. And eventually neither of us made the corner because I'd gone in too fast in the wet and couldn't make the corner. And then he was leaning into the corner, which is where my back wheel then was, completely by yeah. surprise to him. So the two of us ended up sat on the fence 
crits are something that I think should be, you know, crits are just tour series as well. Like, come on, man. There's only like a handful of people who can race them anyway. Like, you know, it's not really fair, is it? It's not, um, it isn't. Come on. There's about 10 people that are realistically going to win the race on there. Maybe at best, probably less, actually. This is something in the tour series, right? Anyone who's listening. So, you know, the neutralized lap, <laughs> right? Like, as I was always at the back, right? It's never, it's never neutral. It's never right. neutralized. And like, there's people who have driven, right, from like Scotland. Or they've got a full-time job and they've got work the next day. And that guy on the motorbike has done those first two laps and people get spat even before the race starts. Yeah, I would describe it as a, a positioning lap with a top speed, <laughs> with yeah. a guaranteed top speed. So we'll, we'll go faster, fast up to 25 miles an hour, whatever, 40 k's an hour, and that's it. But you why do they do that? Everyone everyone says it. Is it to... <laughs> they used to say it's for setting up the cameras. Who knows? It, I, build tension, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I reckon it's something like that, definitely. Um, but then cycling was massive part of your life. Like a you know a huge part of life for you, you have a, a family and you know you had some stellar results. You had some you know fantastic you know moments. When you look back at that, when you look back at your racing career, yep. how do you look back at it? What comes to your mind? Is is it instantly good memories? No, it's not instantly good memories. Um, I never won as much as I really really wanted to, and I don't know why maybe it wasn't good enough and I can accept that now but I probably couldn't have in the past I it was frustrating it's always difficult because you always want a little bit more it didn't actually matter how well things were going you always wanted more and I suppose that's what keeps an athlete training is the belief that more will come if they keep working towards it mm -hmm. so I, I look back and I feel that my career was a time of tiredness slight dissatisfaction but I always knew it was a huge privilege that I was able to do it. I I do know that for sure because I'd remind myself, certainly when the weather was bad, I'd be like, I know it's grim right now, but you're very lucky to be doing this. And if you weren't doing this, you'd regret it. That's tiredness. Yeah. Expand on that because few people have said that. You're just constantly tired. It, all year round from the start of November until the end of September into October maybe. It's just a, it's a non-stop struggle. There are only a few days of the year where you don't feel tired. And that's fine when you're progressing and you're on the way up and your results are getting better. But once that stops, it's quite hard to quite hard to deal with because it's 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 wearing, it becomes very fatiguing. I, I think some people get more tired more quickly than other people, guaranteed. And I suppose the riders that have the longer careers are the ones that can cope with that fatigue. Um, I always think of Yanto as someone that could cope with fatigue quite well. Yanto Barker, who you had on the podcast as well. He's, he is one of the hardest people I know. Yeah. But it cracks you more because he, he doesn't seem hard. Yeah, he's unassuming. And that's the worst type of hard. If it was Wayne Randall, Russ Downing, you know, uh, someone northern in Yorkshire, you'd be like, yeah, well, he, he is hard. That's fair enough. But with him, it's like, fuck, you're hard. And also competitive. So, yeah, I, th I think for someone like that, the fatigue is perhaps a little different. But I've heard Yanto say that the end of my career can't come soon enough because of fatigue and things. So it, it does exist in those people as well. It's just some people are perhaps better at hiding it until you ask them about it. So fatigue, it definitely, it wasn't always a miserable kind of fatigue. I, I think when you're on a training camp, you don't mind that fatigue because you know that you're there with a the team and you're all working towards the goal of doing well that season. 
And as long as the fatigue is there for a reason, you can cope with it. Mm -hmm. It's once that fatigue is there and you no longer know why you're doing it, that's that's then a struggle. And it has an impact on your family as well, I suppose, because I've had Tyler Hamilton on here when he's said about, you know, refusing to go to the shop with his wife. You know, let's just take a step back here, right? Oh, I don't know, because... Yeah, that's justified because he was winning Liège, bashed on Liège. And if he didn't go to the supermarket that Tuesday afternoon with his wife, you know, who's to say he didn't win Liège? But fundamentally, you know, when you become obsessed with a sport, and I missed weddings, I missed parties, I missed, you know, a good five years, and I wasn't even that good through an addiction of cycling. And it was, you know, I, I look at it now from what I've gone through in the past 10 months, you know, I was addicted uh, and it was unhealthy. It was fucking ridiculously unhealthy when I think about it now. Uh, but I suppose the old adage is that you do have to be like that, don't you? I think so. Partly because whether or not you actually have to be like that, you convince yourself you have to be like that. So in order to get the best out of yourself mentally, you have to do those little things that you believe are paramount to your performance. And whether that's I'll religiously go to bed at 10 p.m. or I'll drink a pint of water before anything else in the morning. It's it's those little things that add up that on race day give you the confidence. So if, if Tyler believed, for example, that, okay, if I stay on the sofa this afternoon, I'll have more energy left over to win the age, then that ultimately to him might play on his mind in the race. And he'll be like, no, I did that. It's right. I've got the energy here. I can do this. Whereas if he perhaps walked around the supermarket, he might be then doubting himself for whatever reason because he didn't stay true to what he believed in and then was missing that that edge that comes with that belief and that confidence. I did some fucked up things when I think about it now, when I was racing. You know, I remember getting back from work one night, 10pm at night, it was winter, and I hadn't ridden that day and I was knackered, absolutely knackered. It was winter, 10pm at night, and I think I went out on the bike for like 23 minutes, 24 minutes, just to scratch that itch of obsession yeah. and when i look back at it now that's just someone who's not well <laughs> someone who's someone who probably needs you know a bit of help can you imagine seeing someone go out at that time on the night oh but i've got to do it i've got to do it it's gonna make me go better <laughs> yeah i i know exactly what you mean i've never seen other people do it i've seen johnny brownie do it at a training camp in lanzarote we didn't get there till 11 p.m at night everyone else was like oh fuck He's like, right, got to put my running kit on. Got to go out for a little run. And that's the life of an athlete, isn't it? Or an aspirational athlete is they are addicted to something, whether it's the routine or whether it is the actual fitness fitness element of it, or if it's looking a certain way or just acting in a certain way, that, that addiction is a large part of what propels them to do what they do. That does kind of um, ties in to um, talking about your life post-racing. Because you did achieve a lot. You were, you were quite modest then. Uh, you know, you were a massive time hitter in the UK. And, you know, you were on that amazing team, One Pro Cycling. And uh, we had Yanto on and we spoke about, like, that circuit, the Fens race, where you kind of blew it up. And I remember seeing you before in the bus. You had this amazing big team bus. And, you know, you had stellar riders, you know. Um, I suppose what I want to ask you is, how did you know when it was coming towards an end? Was it, you know, a conscious thing? Or were you pushed on? Yeah. So I knew it was going to come to an end financially was the real reason. So 
it's quite a, it's quite a weird one to talk about. So in 2016, we raced a few of the spring classics and I'd had a few results, but on the whole, for many reasons, it wasn't the year that I'd really hoped to have. And when it came to contract renewal time, my contract wasn't renewed with that team. And I was a little bit lost and I didn't really know what was happening. And this is the first time that I can recognise any sort of, it wasn't depression, but it was a real battle to get off the sofa. Damn, I was kind of hoping you were going to suffer from depression and then we could kind of... <laughs> the reason I say I wouldn't describe it as depression is I've known in my family people that just suffer with real depression and it's quite different. So it was certainly low mood, but yet I could still appreciate certain things in life. Whereas when people are truly depressed, it, it's more severe than that, mm. I think. But it, it, the point is, it's the first period of my life that I really recognised low mood, which I think led to some of the feelings I had years later. So I wasn't re-signed and I went through this contract renewal of, I have two kids, you know, I need, whatever happens, I need to provide for them first and foremost. What are the names? What are the Boaz and Fleur, they're 10 and, 10 and nearly eight now. Wow. Because I'm only 27 myself, I tell people. I didn't realise you had kids so young. That's phenomenal, yeah. I'm not 27, I'm 34. But yes, I had them throughout the entire time I was racing as a career. So it is something I was always used to. But yeah, contract renewal time. I wasn't renewed with the team that I'd wanted to stay with. And then I had an opportunity to either wait for a team to finalise the last few riders, and that would have been a two-year contract, or just jump at the first one-year contract I had. Because of the kids, you know, and in my mind, I didn't have the confidence to wait, which is the first time ever, and this is partly because of the low mood. Normally, I'd back myself completely, and I'd be like, no, it'll be fine, don't worry. And actually, having spoken to them the year after, it probably would have been okay. But I couldn't deal on maybes. I needed to know certainties. So I signed the first contract that was offered to me, really, which was for Bike Channel Canyon, which was fine. But I realised very quickly it wasn't a team that operated in the same way as the teams that I'd been on ever. It was very much an amateur cycling team with a salary and some nice races, which was very upsetting, really. And I had some great results and actually some really nice teammates, Rob Partridge, I got to ride with and loads of other people, really nice people. So it wasn't really a bad thing. I just didn't feel quite as proud of being in that team as I had done perhaps in other teams because of the way it was managed. It just wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. And then the year or the end of that year, the main title sponsor went into administration. And for months and months and months, we were reassured by the team manager. It's all fine. Don't worry. I've already secured more money for next year than we had this year, even with that title sponsor. So, okay, we'll just carry on as normal. I'd signed my contract in June because I'd had a good start to the year. He was very happy. Anyway, seven days before Christmas, we were sent an email saying that we have two options. Either we fold the team now and you'll go and find another another team to ride for. Well, no one's really going to find a team a week before Christmas. It's <laughs> coming. Or you all agree to a 50% pay cut. Now, I wasn't paid massively well as a bike rider, but it was enough to support my family and make it viable to do what I enjoy doing. But when that's halved, that's absolutely not possible. And from that point onwards, so December 2017, I was unable to train in the same way I trained before. Yeah, because your morale is just going to be yeah, shot. Because yeah. it felt like every single pedal stroke I took was just taking me towards a cliff edge. And that's how I used to see it in my head. I'd just burst into tears when I was riding my bike. It's a big resentment, isn't it? And if you have a resentment inside you, a disturbance, they, what I've been told recently with resentments is they're the biggest um, cause of a relapse. 
Okay. If you have a disturbance in your head, a resentment against someone, you have to squash it then and then. And it normally fills into being my fault <laughs> somewhere. But I could imagine with yourself going out, cycling, um, knowing that there must have been too much going on in your mind. Some people say, oh, go, get out on your bike, it'll clear your head. Fuck that. No. You, are you joking? Are you, you have to have a clear mind to go out on the head. I've been, oh God, like even now going out cycling when your mind's just going ping, 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 ping. You know, even I did it the other day and the whole ride and I speak to my mates, former mate of this lad, Phil, and he's from Bury, he's a scaffolder. And he goes, we always like mark our rides out of 10. And just recently they've been about a four out of 10. Unless it's a Saturday and it's sunny. Then I'll do a video and make it look mint. But if not, rides are normally about four or five out of ten. And uh, and he goes, yeah, just every, probably every 20 seconds you want to turn around. <laughs> can you <laughs> can you relate with that back in the day? Yeah, 100%. It was just impossible. Not in the, I'd never stopped training because of bad weather. Whereas and that winter I did, it was just impossible to continue with the same sort of motivation. So then um, at the end of my career, I was offered a job. And this is, oh, I was heading to the Tour Yorkshire at the time. And someone sent me a message, Dan Lloyd from GCN sent me a message asking, would I be interested in going for a test shoot? Wow. And 30 days later, I'd retired from one career and started the next. I retired on... In 30 days? I've ret yeah. I stopped racing at 9pm on a Thursday in the last tour series in Salisbury in 2018. And at 8.30 the next morning, I was in the office in Bath, starting a new new career, really. Were you and him friends? Yeah. Were you mates? I didn't really know him at all. Um, I don't think we'd had any actual interaction prior to that point. The only thing that had happened is they'd found a video of me on YouTube doing like a, a walk around for one pro cycling, actually it was, at one of the spring classics. I can't remember what I was doing exactly. Just like a carrying a camera, walking around, talking about what we've been up to. So you were headhunted, Mr. Opie? Headhunted? That's what I'm going to put on my CV from now forward. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know GCN, Global Cycling Network, big player. Um, you either love them or you hate them. Um, you know, personally, me, indifferent. It is good. You know, I've got a pass and I watch all the races. It's phenomenal for that. You can't knock it. Do you look back at it fondly? Was it a good time? Even that's quite double because ultimately I didn't enjoy it, which is why I left. And But there were some amazing experiences. I met some good people through it. So... I can't look upon it as a solely bad period, although it did coincide with the genuine worst period of my life. And this is where addiction and misuse of alcohol and just my life felt like it was disintegrating, I suppose, really, throughout that period, because it was such a massive culture shock to the life I'd led before that. And I really didn't cope with it well at all, to the point that I've had two years now worth of counselling, therapy, whatever it's called, mm. um, to, to, to better understand it and to process it. Talkers, you know, f first of all, thank you for sharing that. I really respect your honesty because not every single person uh, finds it easy to just say what you said. Um, so you just said, you know, you, you struggled a little bit with, and I'm guessing this is tying in with the retirement of your identity as professional cyclist going into something else, maybe feeling that you dream had kind of lost. You're trying to re, I suppose, recreate yourself. 
as Chris Opie. Um, so what was that period like? You said you, you know, you know, I've battled addiction and stuff. I'm 10 months sober now from substances. Um, I do meetings and stuff. I suppose you didn't get as bad as me. Everyone's rock bottom is different, but give us an insight into that part of your life. Um, actually, I, I drove to um, an alcoholics meeting and sat in my car and cried instead. That felt like an easier thing to do. And not many people know that until they hear this. Um, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it on the map, so I gave up. So I do CA, which is Cocaine Anonymous. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'm not ready to like tell everyone, you know, the levels of my use, but it, we're... we're, we're you know we're we're talking bad and um and it's so hard to admit that you have a problem yeah it is. because you are powerless <laughs> um, whether you want to be or not actually it's not it's not a conscious decision i think this is often something that is misunderstood is you don't wake up one morning and decide i'm going to do this it just creeps in so mine crept my problem with alcohol crept in quickly i gave up doing a huge amount of exercise mm -hmm. and for the first few days the first few weeks the first six weeks maybe even it was amazing because you have all this fitness that because you've just trained for months and then all of a sudden you're fresh as well so that fatigue's gone instantly you're doing a new job and you very privileged job because you get given loads of cool equipment and you get to go on trips to nice places and obviously that is nice it's not a bad thing so you're on a bit of a high and you feel like you've escaped the situation previously. But whilst I was on this high of new things happening and it's exciting because it's new and you have new equipment and as a bike rider, that is nice. There was a, a real issue very quickly that I noticed and that was a lack of exercise. And it kind of presented itself in the for form of my heart felt like it wanted to explode out of my chest. And I felt stressed and I would shake and I would gen like genuinely, if I didn't ride my bike incredibly hard, at least four times a week for about an hour, I, I didn't function like a normal human, but that wasn't always possible because the workplace was three and a half hours away from where I lived at the time. So two days a week, I had to do that drive, drive up on a Monday morning, drive back on a Wednesday. So I couldn't exercise in those two days. And then the last two days I worked at home. So you could exercise a little bit at the weekend, but then you also need to spend time with the children, with my wife, Micah. And that was, it just meant that there wasn't enough time to do the things that I wanted to do. So you're losing fitness all the time. You're not exercising enough to dispel the stress. But I noticed quite quickly, oh, after work, people go for a drink in the pub next door because yeah. GCN is right next door to a pub. Um, oh, I'll have a beer. And all of a sudden, I realized that if you have one, two, three, seven beers, that stress disappears completely because it's replaced by something else, which ultimately causes you stress. You know, it raises your cortisol levels in your blood, doesn't it? So it was a short-term fix for what went on to become a long-term problem. And I didn't realise it at the time. Then fast forward a few more weeks, I got to the end, you have a three-month week, a three -month probation, as it were. That's what it's called. And I felt quite stressed about that as well because no one tells you if you've passed it or not. They just don't tell you that you're not passed it. So I had to ask about that. And But I, in that time, I'd already realised that this isn't going to really make me very happy. I'm not enjoying this, but I literally don't know what other opportunity I have 
I'd always had this dream that when I came to the war, towards the end of my cycling career, in the quiet months, end of season, I would try and create my own apprenticeships, doing different trades because I like building and I like being practical, doing carpentry, um, masonry, things like that, just to try and learn something and see what I really liked doing. That opportunity didn't happen, so I took the first thing that that was there. Um, but I quite quickly realised I didn't like it. Nine days out of ten, you're sat at a desk in an office from nine till five thirty. This is this is quite a strict hour lunch break. You know when you sit in a big office and everyone's like, "Oh, they've been out for sixty-two minutes." Oh, that yeah, been there. That can become uh, again another resentment. You know, just builds, builds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't arrive a minute late. Don't leave a minute early. But I'm surprised about that because I thought you'd be out doing videos and you'd be out recording stuff on you know you always had mint bikes and stuff yeah which you can never really ride because there wasn't enough time now obviously if you live closer i i couldn't afford to live in bath it was a very expensive place i lived about an hour away um and it didn't really matter how i did that commute it was always going to be about an hour an hour and 15 realistically so i i would always rush home to see my family and kids wife and kids but quite quickly you realize that when you're leaving at quarter past seven in the morning and you're getting home at seven in the evening, there's not a lot of time with young children then left over because they don't really wake up much before seven in the morning when they're uh, four and six, and they don't go to bed much after seven. So you start to become quite disconnected from them. You spend time with them in the weekend, but it's not a lot of time. And because you haven't seen them for five days, you're trying to change speed. You're going from, oh, Chris, that's out of work all day and, you know speaking in a certain way to certain people because you're an adult to then all of a sudden trying to remind yourself no this is how you speak to your children to your wife and i was stressed all the time because i wasn't seeing them as much as i've been used to seeing them because i go out training in the morning i'd always leave about eight o'clock so realistically unless i was doing a crazy long day two o'clock in the afternoon i was more than ready to go and spend time with my family and i loved that and that's why i enjoyed racing at the level i raced at, and it just had a balance to life and quickly within that first year, that balance was so far removed from... It was too much too soon. It was too much too soon, yeah. The average human being, and I'm not I'm not defending you and, and I'm not persecuting you here, but the average human being, that's not too alien. You know, some my dad used to leave the house at half seven, he'd get back at quarter past six and he was on the tennis court at half past six. But for someone like yourself, who has had a whole life of... Um, doing what he wants, kind of when he wants, um, to then boom, being told when he can take lunch. I can, I can completely get that. That must have been, that must have been so overwhelming at times. You were kind of struggling to breathe a bit. Yeah, it was distressing, but luckily, you know, you could start lunchtime drinking to help with that. And so, yeah. there's more to that. I is a six month notice period. And in 2019, I decided enough was enough. I couldn't continue with this. I need to hand in my notice. I tried to make it work for me and for my family. And I just couldn't. So I decided I was going to have to give in. And I'm quite a stubborn person. I don't like giving up at anything. So it felt like I was giving up. But actually, it was probably the best thing I've done. But six months after you've decided you need to leave, you still have to go and do that job every single day. And that was that was when the real torture started. That was when, because I planned to make a comeback to racing. Because I needed to do something. It wasn't for money. It was just so I could go and do something else alongside it. It was just so that I could escape from something which really didn't fulfil me. 
And it was the last thing that I, well, it's the only thing I knew. So I wanted to return to that. And I felt like I'd learned a lot in that period of time. I could probably still be very good at it to a level that wouldn't embarrass myself and I'd enjoy it. I'd be competitive and just, you know, maybe do it for a year. So that was, I was hoping to do it for 2020. And obviously the pandemic, so there was no racing in the UK. Um, yeah, that notice period, that six months was, was very quickly tortured to the point that, oh, we can drink at lunchtime, can we? Because no one's actually, you know, as long as we're back on time, it doesn't matter how half half drunk we are when we come back. Yeah. If my riding my bike into work and out, it'll help. You know, I'll, I'll get home and I'll be okay. And I'll have had this little release in the middle of the day. Well, that, that quickly became obviously a problem because you just shouldn't really be drinking in the middle of the day on a weekday when you're at work. Yeah. But it was the only way that it just helped me Relax. I've done. I've done worse, so don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was not a good period of my life, and it culminated in I handed in my notice in the October, in the January. One day, I was asked a question, and I just couldn't. I couldn't cope with the question. I stood up. That was by my direct manager. Um, I stood up. I walked out, and luckily, the one thing I would say about um, Play Sports Network, which is the the parent company of GCN, is their HR team were very supportive. And they worked very hard to make sure that I was okay. And um, I was then on gardening leave. I couldn't race until after the pandemic. Yes, yeah, so that was that was the final nail in the coffin. Really, was the pandemic was the week that I was free from the contractual obligation with GCN. Was the week that the world went into lockdown? Actually, no. I think the world went into lockdown ten days before my contract expired. So I was just stuck at home. But being stuck at home was the single best thing ever. That's what I needed. I needed that time, that space away from everything because there was no time from one thing to the next. It had been flat out for years. At the, whilst it was a genuine catastrophe financially, like we've moved in with my parents, my, my wife, Maka, my two children, our two dogs, now live with my parents, a place where I grew up and tried to leave when I was 15. Not because I didn't like it, but because I wanted to go and pursue something else. Is this Truro, near Truro? Yes, yeah. They're amazing people. We get on really well. And it's, it's, it is nice living here but you just don't imagine that in your 30s, do you? You know, a friend of mine's gone to Iceland to play football. He used to play professional football. He's had to take a three-month contract in a team in Iceland. He just had a baby. Um, and he was really upset because he doesn't want to be away from the newborn baby for three months. He's having to stay in a hotel room in Iceland for three months. Well, fucking hell, we know what we'd be getting up to, Chris, if that was us. Like, Well, I would anyway, you know. Three months on your own ain't, ain't going to look good. Um, so, you know, what you're saying is um, it, it's really inspiring. It's really honest of you because so many people don't even tell you the truth. You know, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing well. And, you know, they just kind of like, you know, it's a caveat for, the, you know, and if they're not, and if they are fine, then mint great news. Like, I love it when people are doing good. Do you know what I mean? Like when someone's like, genuinely, I'm really got like, you know, because it's took me, it's took me a long time to get to this place where I am. Um, so, how are you now? Fast track, you know, you've had a yeah. It's it's been a real journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I can imagine it has, but you know, like fair play for quitting something, you know, and not knowing what you're going to do after because that takes real balls, man. There were many, many things throughout that period that I knew at the time 
were cry for help. I was like, if I do this, someone's going to see that this is out of character and they're going to come and put their arm around me and everything's going to be okay. But I learned that as an adult, you can have as many cries for help as you like or that you perceive to be a real cry for help. No one's coming to help you unless you're able to actually do it yourself. Um, sadly, it took you know too long for me to realise that, and um, yeah, that's that is just one of those things. There's so many things that are out of character. I I passed out at the Christmas party after hitting my head in the toilets. It's the, it's the only explanation for hitting my head or for passing out in the toilet was hitting my head on the sink. I remember trying to. I had this stupid costume on, and I remember trying to go to the toilet, and I must have just fallen over. Yeah after throwing up on myself and I threw up on myself that night and I had to wear the same clothes to work the next day. Just these things, they would, I wash them off in the shower, but you know, never. but those things now, when you look at it, you can go look, you know, cause you sound like you're in a better place and you, you sound like you, you know, um, you know, it's not always as straightforward as that. It's not always so lineal. It's mad. Cause I look, you know, we can both look back now and go, well, that wasn't really Chris Opie that I know. Exactly. And that's a huge thing. I think anyone that met me in that period didn't meet me. They, they didn't. They definitely didn't meet the person that sat here now or the person that would have been there 10 years ago. Um, and it's weird because you know, you, you know inside when you're behaving in a way that isn't really you, but yet because you're in distress, you don't do anything about it. You just carry on and you sort of let it run wild. Someone said to me once that we all have the ability to self-destruct within us but some mm. of us do act on it or not. And that kind of used to repeat itself in my head a little bit at that time. But at, 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 the, at the time, whilst it repeated, I didn't know how to stop that behavior. I didn't know how to, to behave in the correct way. So the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing each time and hope that there's going to be a different outcome. So a hot stove, you put your hand on a hot stove, you burn your hand. Right, well, I'm not doing that again because it's going to burn my hand. Well, an addict or an alcoholic is someone who thinks, oh, this time's going to be different, right? But it isn't. In fact, it gets worse. Um, so I have a part of my brain which is insane by nature. I don't, I don't see repercussions. Um, and what you just said then about people acting on this thing and they, you know, this ability to self-destruct, you know, my answer would be, well, let's just get fucked up. That's got. That's the only answer. <laughs> it's all too much. Let's just get fucked up. But most people don't. Most people are like, oh, well, you know, I think I'll go home and sit on that and, you know, might have a cup of tea and, oh, I'm a little bit annoyed. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> can you relate with that? Yeah. But that is the beauty of life is that we all are so different and we do respond in very different ways. So now... I've learned, so one of the major things with counselling was to learn from you, something happens, you're going to feel a certain way about it. That's always going to happen. But after you've tried to work on things, and I don't like the phrase, but when you work on yourself, you create the space between how you feel and how you act. And that was a major one. So I'd feel stressed. Okay, stress straight away. Oh, taste buds. I'll have a drink. Whereas now... I've, I've not had a drink since um, December 31st. Fucking absolute quality, mate. Honestly, I'm clapping you. That is phenomenal. That is absolutely phenomenal. And I suspect after this year, there's no real need to start drinking again. I'd love to one day in the future be someone that just drinks at a wedding and that's it. Socially. But, yeah, exactly. Just 
only when you're at an event. But I'm not ready for that at the moment. I just need to continue with a complete ban, <laughs> self-enforced abstinence. Do you know, honestly, mate, we're going to carry on talking. I'm so happy we've, this is, because, you know, someone's wronged me just recently from the group. You know, we're checking on each other throughout the day about drinking. And um, I, I was going to ask you, have you been able to, you know, because they say you can't or whatever, but do you think it's just easy just to have an alcohol ban? You just, you know. Yeah, for me at this point, yeah, definitely. I think I need to create, so going back to that space and the reactions from your feelings, you react, you feel about something, then you need to create that space before you react on it. And, and that goes the same for, for anger and any other emotion, any emotion you could ever feel. You, a huge part of what I've spent time focusing on was you feel it, then you need to pause. Then you need to just stop and think either logically or rationally before you act on it. And that's, that's the major thing that I've learned in the last two years is it's not to have less emotion, it's just how you choose to react on those feelings and those emotions because the way I was doing it before in that distressed period was wrong. Whereas now I'm not distressed now, you know, things definitely aren't a hundred percent, but I'd say my life is very, very good compared to a lot of the things that we can read about in the world these days. I probably have nothing to complain about. I have a roof, we have running water, we can afford to eat and I get to ride bikes and I have a, a genuine, very nice job in a nice environment. I get to meet and speak to lots of people. Yeah, That's a, a huge privilege. But it doesn't mean it quite aligns with what I'd always hoped with. You know, I'd love to live in my own home. I'd love to have a garden where the kids can go and ride their bikes around. Just because that's that was something that motivated me in life, was providing that to my family. But it doesn't mean my life's bad just because I haven't quite achieved that yet. I've got the whole future to come. Would you say that you've kind of come full circle now with, and you've almost fallen back in love with cycling a bit yeah i i've always loved riding my bike even even in that four month five month period before i retired in 2018 when it was digging me and my family a financial pit because it wasn't providing what it needed to provide in order to continue doing it even then there were still days where i had a really nice mountain bike at the time i could go and ride and i always try and find pleasure in something somewhere and I think that is really important. Like, if you go for a bike ride, you remember what it's like when you go training. It's it can be really grim, can't it? It can be really painful, really tiring. But you'll come to a descent, and you'll just take the corner perfectly, just the correct line at the correct speed. And you just have to really focus on the rest of this ride. Might have been rubbish. I probably wasn't going as well as I wanted to, but I enjoyed that. I felt good. I did it correctly. I've always always loved doing things technically well. Partly because at school, I think this is because at school I was useless at everything. Couldn't do any of the things that we had to do in sports. So focusing on doing the technical aspect of cycling really gave me great pleasure because I seemed to be able to do it. I worked on it hard. And I think that's where the, that fulfillment comes from. So focusing on one aspect of every day that you enjoyed, whether that's waking up the first cup of coffee or... Yes, you know, coffee. <laughs> I love it when my wife laughed. In that period of distress, I didn't hear her laugh that much. Because she was distressed as well, because she had to live with me. It must have been terrible. And for the children as well, I'm sure. And now, now to hear her like the sunshine, it's amazing. I saw Tyson Fury on Saturday night and um, he said the same thing. How his wife and kids put up with him while he, while he had his bad time. Uh, you know, because it has an impact. Our, our actions when we were, I'm going to say, not well. Because when, you know, because we all weren't well. Uh, it does have it does have repercussions on other people, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Uh, quickly tell us about, you know, you've got this new thing with Lacole. Tell us, you know, I used to be at Lacole. It's a cool company, you know, great owner and stuff. So give us a bit of an insight. Okay, so my role at Lacole started last year and it was quite broad and quite, you know, unclear to start with. I think now 12 months on or 18 months on, it's a lot clearer. The The main part of what I do each and every single week is host three to four online virtual training rides where people can come along and they'll do a training session that's i describe it as halfway between a traditional cycling training session and a spin class you have to keep it quite engaging which is where the spin class reference comes in but equally it has to be beneficial to people's cycling performance so we do three of those rides at the moment in the summertime hosted by myself and then four in the winter and we have somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred people most weeks turn up it's a little bit quieter now doing well it's amazing, yeah. On the biggest rides, I think one ride we did, we have over 1,400 people. Most daily training sessions will be around 300. At this time of year, it's still over 100, which is amazing in itself. It's and the, we, yeah. the goal is to educate people and help their journey through cycling because everyone starts from a very different starting point. Some people come in from other sports. Some people, some people on these rides only ride on Zwift. They don't go outside. And so you you have to offer everyone something and help educate them on how best to you know, to train really. And then to go with that, we do training programs. All of this stuff is free, by the way, apart from a Zwift subscription. How can people find this? It's easy. The Lacole Cycling Club, LCCC. Wow. Instagram it, on the website. Just on the website, type it in. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, you have to create an account so you sign up with your email, but then it is free after that. Um, but it's free free to access you just need to sign up sorry and you can earn discount you can access our videos of coaching content we have videos with bradley wiggins fabian cantelara victoria pendleton dame sarah story Kristen armstrong um lucy gad kevin reza there's so many people that have been involved in providing us with their experience and knowledge to help create training content it's um special even yanta's in the video special doesn't cover it it really is an amazing uh, resource yeah. and we're going to continue building out building it out so basically if somebody really wanted to learn about cycling performance and how to improve their ability to ride a bike this would be the place to come there are three-week training programs six-week training programs for all levels it's it's just a really positive thing to do i was saying this to my mates it's all well and good in summer but in winter i need i need something i've got yeah. to have something in winter to look forward to so if we could have a chat yeah of um, course 10 past seven every morning oh no yeah. well, every morning oh, wednesdays and Friday. Fridays can, and then we do an evening one as well 10 past six but yeah, we want to build bad. out on that as well we want to provide more more times for more people because it's not possible for everyone is it at those times of day so we try and create a program that works for everyone ultimately and and have a real human there that knows about cycling or wants to talk and help coach people through a session phenomenal that is um well yeah look i'm gonna give that a go because i was worried actually the other day i thought it's all well and good when this is summer but winter what am i gonna do so i need something to get me through winter i'm um, not a big fan of zwift tom but riding those sessions makes helps. it you know really special because you're talking to people and that is nice yeah feel social you might not be verbally talking but you can text and it, it is good it's like a whatsapp yeah i think i will need something like that but um well look Chris, it has been phenomenal. I, I didn't think you were going to be as honest and open, and I think it's going to really help some people. Hearing, you know, you've kind of gone full circle, hearing you start. There's nothing better than someone who's picked themselves up from a bad time. You know, I'm not so interested in people who are just always amazing. <laughs> F 
for me, I, I love it when someone's been great, gone down, and then gone, how am I going to build myself back up? So to hear you do that, it's really helped me. It's really, you know, I'm going to keep in touch with you about the drinking thing. We can keep each other motivated because I'll be a year in September and I'm, I'm, I am really want to touch wood. You know, I'm going to get there. No, you, you will. When you put your mind to something and you have, it's the support around you that helps, isn't it? I've also noticed in the last year or the last two years, whilst it was hard to open the gates to being honest completely, it's actually just easier in the end. And and the more I do it, the more it helps me personally. So it's not completely selfless. Like it helps me a great deal still to talk about things, even though, you know, I'm quite far down my own journey of going from a bad place to a good place. It just makes a big difference. And hearing other people's stories always helped me as well. Of course it does. To know you're not going through something alone because you can feel so isolated when you feel bad. You'll be surprised the amount of people who are suffering who do, and unfortunately they don't really talk about it. But I don't want people to suffer. We don't want bad stories. You know, we want people to be great and they will yeah. be at some point. And listening to this is going to help them. Um, so we'll look, I'll let you get on with your day. We'll keep in touch. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.